This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo. Good morning, I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Thanksgiving is a time for families and friends to be together. Yet at many dinner tables this past Thursday, there was, figuratively at least, an empty chair. The chair of a loved one who is missing. How in this day and age can people simply disappear? And what can be done to find them? Those are mysteries Susan Spencer will investigate in our Sunday morning cover story. In this country, at any given moment, there are roughly 84,000 people classified as missing. That's him, it's in the early 80s. At the age of 44, Stuart Fletcher Curran disappeared, leaving his childhood friend to search obsessively for him. It took years. I looked for people on the street You mean you'd see somebody on the street and you'd say, I wonder if that could be Fletcher? Yes. But would he ever find the answer? This is the bench. Ahead on Sunday morning. Striking a chord 
is what four piano showmen are famous for. Lee Cowan will make the introductions. They're not your average musical group. But they're not your average rock stars either. We've had really slow, steady, just consistent growth. We kind of just under the radar and we feel like we're fulfilling our purpose in life and that's, that's good enough. Ahead on Sunday morning, how four Utah dads became piano movers of sorts and in the process exploded into a global music sensation. In her latest film, actress Carrie Mulligan relives the British battle for voting rights for women. In real life, she battles as best she can to keep her private life private. Ben Tracy will have our Sunday profile. It is my intention to astonish you all. Carrie Mulligan is being called one of the best actresses of her generation. Let me see him, please. But she prefers you know nothing about her. I don't want people to watch me on screen and think about who I'm married to or where I live or, you know, what restaurant they've seen me coming out of. From the Broadway stage to the big screen, we'll talk with Carrie Mulligan later on Sunday morning. This morning's Tale of the Squirrel is a title with a double meaning, as Luke Burbank will demonstrate. Bentonville, Arkansas is home to Walmart and a cooking competition like no other. Whether you love them or hate them, you probably haven't ever had them for lunch. Get to cooking! Woo! There was squirrel roasted, grilled, fried, squirrel soups, squirrel empanadas, and even this, a Japanese-style squirrel dumpling. Squirrel, the other, other, other white meat. Ahead on Sunday morning. Aaron Moriarty has some questions for David Remnick. Steve Hartman visits a pair of naval history boys. We'll meet a photographer whose work is nearly picture perfect. But first, one man's search. Based on the true story, Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. When someone is reported missing, there's no guarantee they'll ever be found. Much depends on the determination of the people behind the search. Our cover story is reported now by Susan Spencer of 48 Hours. Tampa Bay Times writer Andrew Meacham is in the storytelling business, but one story from his own past haunts him that of his childhood friend. Stuart Fletcher Curran. When did you first meet him? In the fifth grade. And he wasn't going to be a jock. He wasn't going to be a movie star. But he could be the smartest kid in the room. Fletcher's early brilliance seemed to promise a bright future. That's him. It's in the early 80s. But shortly okay. after that picture was taken, his behavior became increasingly strange. I remember hearing about... Um, 
Fletcher believing that the FBI and law enforcement were attacking him with high-intensity beams of magnetic light. His mother finally got him to see a psychiatrist, and he accused the psychiatrist of being in on the plot. Diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, Fletcher began leading a transient life. He fell out with his family and then seemed to fall off the earth. The last time you actually saw him was when? Around late August 1999. I had a sense that the future was shifting and not in a good way. The last time anyone saw Fletcher was a month later, sleeping on this roadside bench in Seminole, Florida. At the time, he was 44. And to be here and to just disappear is not something anybody expected. Meacham admits that finding Fletcher soon became an obsession. It took years. I looked for people on the street. You mean you'd see somebody on the street and you'd say, I wonder if that could be Fletcher? Yes, somebody with brown wavy hair. Meacham even worked with a detective. Not a trace. No contact with law enforcement. Not showing up as receiving any benefits. No one's heard from him. How does somebody fall through the cracks like this? Sadly, it's not all that hard. In this country, at any given moment, there are roughly 84,000 people classified as missing. That is more than enough to fill every single empty seat here at the cavernous AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, home of the Dallas Cowboys. There is no such thing as a disposable person. You know, every one of these people matters. B.J. Spommer is a director at NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System based at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth. There's something about seeing the picture that makes it different. There is, it makes yeah. it real. NamUs is the only federally funded database of the missing and unidentified open to the public. Missing persons run the gamut from your stranger abducted child to your runaway juvenile to your adult who goes missing and we fear that foul play has occurred. Like Fletcher, adults do disappear, but laws are more geared toward finding kids. There is a federal mandate that if a child goes missing, a law enforcement agency will immediately take a report from family. There is not a federal requirement related to missing adults. Which may be why no missing persons report ever was filed for Fletcher. But this is astonishing. I mean, you've been through all of this and basically you still until now, you have no answers. Exactly. Out of other options, Andrew Meacham scoured the NamUs reports on unidentified remains. When you can't find him alive, you have to start wondering if he's somewhere dead. He hit on NamUs case number 991145, an unidentified man found dead of a heart attack on this bench five days after Fletcher was last seen and just five miles away. But Meacham was unconvinced. The image that, that was accompanying this entry on the NamUs database uh, didn't look enough like him. He compared that image 
an artist's rendering of what the unidentified man looked like when alive, to Fletcher's state identification photo. He still wasn't sure. I think he was frustrated because he couldn't quite tell mm -hmm. if that was his friend or not. Bill Pellin heads up investigations for the medical examiner's office in Pinellas County, Florida, where the unidentified remains were housed. This here is all of our unidentified case files. The office has a high success rate in finding the missing, but in Fletcher's case, there was little to work with. No fingerprints, no obvious way to get DNA. His friend's immediate family had all died, and so obtaining DNA from family members to compare to our unidentified person um, was not possible. But then Meacham remembered a letter Fletcher had written to him almost two decades ago, in the days when people still licked envelopes. There's the postmark, 1996, January 24th. Would it be possible to extract DNA from saliva under the envelope's seal? I've never heard of making an identification using an envelope. I was expecting that they would say well, it's too corroded, it's too old. But after weeks of work, the DNA team astonished everyone. They took and opened the flap and cut out the section of the seal. Um, and that's where they were able to extract DNA from that. Wow, so all the DNA they're using came out of this little one inch strip. That's it. That's it. From 20 years ago. Yes, isn't that, that is, amazing? Yeah, <laughs> that is truly amazing. It is. So they had Fletcher's DNA, but was it a match? Whatever answer you get, it's not going to be good. That's right, but at least it's an answer. We talked to Andrew Meacham a day before he would find out. What does your heart tell you? My heart tells me I don't think it's him. You don't think it's him? No. We're going to go straight on down the last door on the right there. And the next day... So that's the envelope back to you. In Pellin's office, the long-awaited news. So based on that full profile, from the envelope, your search for Fletcher's over. Hmm. Um, you found him. Okay. First came shock, then grief, um, but also relief. You know, I, I, I'm just blown away. Weeks later, on a warm morning in Olivia, North Carolina, Meacham joined a small gathering to bury Fletcher's remains in the family plot. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Sixteen years after Stuart Fletcher Curran died, alone and unnamed on a roadside bench, his childhood pal was able at last to say goodbye. You have turned out to be an amazing friend. I think I've turned out just to be a friend. You know, I mean, this is what friends do. You don't let each other just disappear. And I'm sorry that I waited so long. Next. He turns on a terrific burst of speed to outdistance the Navy pursuers on a 50. When Army 
plays Navy. Based on the true story, Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Be prepared to go to prison. Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated are under 17 not admitted without parent only in theaters this november everywhere thanksgiving and now a page from our sunday morning almanac november 29th 1890 that's 125 years ago today the day army hosted navy at west point in their very first football game navy beat army 24 to nothing that day army came back the next year with a 32 to 16 win the rivalry almost died an early death in 1894 when both academies were forbidden to play anything but home games. But following an appeal by Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, the game was reinstated in 1899. And with just a few interruptions, it's been game on ever since. Undefeated Army makes its entrance, and here comes the Navy squad. In fact, in the pre-Super Bowl era, Army-Navy was widely considered to be the game. He turns on a terrific burst of speed to outdistance the Navy pursuers. Usually played on neutral ground in Philadelphia, the game has been a magnet for presidents. Harry Truman was a frequent fan. And John F. Kennedy attended in 1962. In the period of mourning following his assassination the very next year, it was Jacqueline Kennedy who urged that the game go on. Navy won 21 to 15 in a game also remembered for featuring the very first instant replay, a CBS Sports Innovation, as it happens. Sadly enough, we can't replay that replay for you now. It was erased long ago. After 115 games, Navy currently leads the series with 59 wins to Army's 49. There were seven ties. This year's game, number 116, is to be played Saturday, December 12th, and it will be broadcast right here on CBS. Instant replays and all. Coming up, Squirrel, a sampler. Our tale of the squirrel is just a thing for anyone tired of turkey leftovers. Luke Burbank serves it up. Weekend cooking competitions are a pretty common sight south of the Mason-Dixon line, but there was something very uncommon about the one held on a recent Saturday in Bentonville, Arkansas. The food itself. Well, welcome to the uh, 2015 World Champion Squirrel Cook-Off. That's right, squirrel. Whether you find them adorable or think of them as rats with cuter tails, you've probably never considered eating them. That is, unless you're from the South. Get to cooking! Woo! You don't have to promote that it's organic, that it's grass-fed, anything of that nature. It just is. I mean, this is tree to table. 
Joe Wilson is the guy behind the cook-off. He says cooking squirrel is a tradition that goes back generations. It's extremely important that we hold on to the culture and the heritage of our community. I started this thing about five years ago to promote the sustainable use of wild game as a, a dinner, as a table fare. In the cook-off, 36 colorfully named teams had two hours to produce a dish and a side dish. And all the squirrel being served had to be caught by the chefs themselves or their friends, since buying or selling wild game meat is actually illegal. Contest favorites, brothers Blaine and Brandon Estes, have won the competition twice in its five-year history. This year, they were competing with squirrel sliders and a squirrel bisque. Yeah, that sounds pretty fancy. Sounds like we know what we're talking about. You don't usually hear those words in the same sentence, (laughs) squirrel bisque. No. Here's the thing about cooking squirrel, though. Even if you're a two-time world champion, you're going to get some pushback. My wife wouldn't cook this. No, and, uh, you know, our mom is a great cook, but even as kids, she wouldn't cook squirrel. No. If you shoot it, you have to eat it. Oh, yeah, and you have to cook it, too. And that seems to be a big part of the messaging here, that this is an example of good animal stewardship, of eating what you hunt, even if it's a rodent. True heaven. We've now arrived at the part of the story where we are legally obligated to ask the question, on the minds of those still watching the program, how does squirrel taste? Matt? Yeah, go ahead. Thanks. Is it seasoned? It's just plain boiled. That's good. It was my first taste of squirrel, but not my last. Inexplicably, I'd agreed to serve as one of the contest's judges, a decision I was beginning to regret. So 80% of the meat inside the dish should be squirrel. If I'm allergic to squirrel, is that a problem? (laughs) Once the judging was underway, though, I had to admit, most of the dishes tasted really good and showed amazing creativity. Wow. Look at the placemat. This is like I'm in a Moroccan restaurant. Of course, 20 or so dishes later, and I was the one starting to feel squirrely. Wow. Awesome. As these iron chefs tested my not-so-iron stomach, there was one silver lining. This year, I think we were pretty light on squirrel desserts, but in the past, you know, we've had squirrel ice cream, we've had squirrel brains with a cream cheese and a puff pastry. I'm happy that that this was a light year for that, considering that I was one of the judges. (laughs) The dessert category can be fairly rough. The day's winning dish turned out to be squirrel empanadas with cilantro lime dipping sauce. It seemed fitting for a contest that's embraced by some and maligned by others that the winning dish was empanadas something that wasn't even invented here, and yet couldn't have been more uniquely American. Still to come, around the world with 88 keys. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. But first, David Remnick talk of the town. He's the talkabout man behind one of our most storied magazines. He's David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker. This morning, he's talking with Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours. I had never been the editor of anything 
Your high school newspaper. I was going to say, the smoke it, it, signal. The smoke signal. I kind of did the whole newspaper on my kitchen table, and it came out twice a year. I don't think that really was adequate preparation. Since his high school days in New Jersey, David Remnick's come a long way. For 17 years, he's been at the helm of The New Yorker, which marked its 90th anniversary this year. Sandy Frazier's piece is ready with art. Remnick is only the fifth editor of the weekly magazine and perhaps one of its most influential. It's said that what he's thinking right now, you'll be talking about next week. Oh, that looks fantastic. And that looked great. That looks he personally chooses the magazine's artistic and topical covers, occasionally so controversial, they spark an outcry. Take Remnick's satirical cover in July 2008. Then-presidential candidate Barack Obama seen wearing a turban and robes and fist-bumping his wife. Can't tell you how many people have said to me, David, you know, if, if they wouldn't have known this was on the cover of the New Yorker magazine, they would have just seen this cartoon and they would have been asked, which magazine has this on the cover? Almost everyone would have said some neo-Nazi magazine, the Ku Klux oh, Klan on, Wolf. magazine. Come on, come on, come on. I, mean, this I found such a question appalling. Just dumb. Dumb. You couldn't consider that maybe you went a little too far? Well, I think... Satire is often about going too far enough. If you're not going too far sometimes, you're playing it awfully safe. Did you lose any subscribers? I mean, considerable number you might lose. Here's what them. happens. I'm going to let you know in a secret. Here's what happens. People call me, cancel my subscription. And my silent answer to that is you cancel your own damn subscription. But in person, Remnick seems less firebrand and more good-humored brainiac. There was a certain kind of streetwise-ness to the Hare Krishna philosophy, so they're out there. Oh, I can't wait to read selling this. books. The magazine seems to reflect his broad interests: news-breaking articles mixed with fiction, <laughs> and of course, its legendary cartoons like this one about an airport scanner that reveals perhaps too much. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> Why can't I use that? All right, there we go. I, I, and he's expanded the reach of his magazine no with a new radio show and a yearly live event. I'm David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker. The New Yorker Festival, which attracts newsmakers and celebrities like Larry David. My mother actually wanted me to be a, uh, a mailman. Shoot. That was her dream. <laughs> With the festival selling out and the magazine reaching younger readers on their electronic devices, Remnick became the editor who could turn red ink to black in an age when many magazines are struggling. I knew at some level that the impact that I could make was infinitely more if I could be a good editor of The New Yorker than as a writer. And I don't think I'm a terrible writer or journalist. I'm not bad. Not bad indeed. Remnick won the Pulitzer Prize in 1994 for his book Lenin's Tomb. By any measure, he's lived a writer's dream life. He wanted to be a newsman and started at the Washington Post. He did features, even covered sports. I covered whatever I was told to, including hockey, which I, I, I had to keep somebody on the phone to explain the game to me. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And then his life was changed by two events. All of a sudden, there was a job notice that went up to go to Moscow, and nobody really wanted to go because it's cold. 
He became the Post correspondent in Moscow, and he married Esther Fine, a reporter at the New York Times. We literally got married in October of 1987 and went to Moscow. It was our the beginning of our marriage. So, yeah. in 1992, after returning to the U.S., Remnick was hired as a staff writer at the New Yorker by the editor at that time, Tina Brown. Why look at becoming the editor of the magazine? <laughs> yes, darling. Why? <laughs> well, it, it was a very strange thing. Tina Brown suddenly decided to leave the New Yorker and start another magazine called Talk. Remnick, a thoughtful, even reticent writer, was not the obvious choice to fill the heels of the more flamboyant Tina Brown. I used to tease him. You know, it was sort of like Joe Torre coming after Billy Martin with the Yankees. Adam Gopnik, a New Yorker staff writer who has worked for four editors there, says that Remnick brought stability to the magazine when Brown left. You know that after a. A brilliant but very high-pressure kind of leader. You want somebody who's、uh, equally authoritative, but in a in a much more generous uh, and uh,、uh, easygoing way. David's great gift is for identifying talent and using it, and creating a circumstance in which talented people feel、uh, happy. The babysitter can come early, so I can go to dinner. At first, the couple says their household is also run with that same spirit of collaboration. We have a complicated family. You know, we have two grown, healthy sons. We have a 15-year-old daughter who has autism, and that, as any parent with、uh, a special needs kid knows, is an enormous challenge, and, and it's not a, a mild case. So we have to depend on each other in innumerable ways that I can't even begin to、uh, calculate. And I would assume the most of the burden of that, the stress, the dealing with it, has been on your shoulders because well, his job has only become more and more complicated over the years. The pragmatics of it is in my hands, but the stress is equally shared. For Remnick, the worries at home. Have put the stress of work in perspective. To do what I do is an immense gift, and at the same time, you know, you see, you know what, you know, real suffering can be. Work is frustrating. The work is complicated. The work is difficult, but it, it's not shoveling coal. It's not suffering. Does he read everything that goes in every single week? As far as I know, every sentence that goes in the magazine. He passes his eyes over at one point or another in the course of、uh, assembling it. And Remnick is not afraid to make tough calls. I remember in the week after 9/11, for instance, and David said, "You know, I'm going to take all the cartoons out of the magazine," which is something we had never done in our history. And is that his decision? That was totally his decision. And I thought that it was a mistake because I thought our readers are looking to us for continuity. That turned out to be an exactly the right thing to do, and put together an extraordinary issue. As editor, Remnick brings a cool perspective to everything he does, but he is acutely aware of the responsibility he carries. Having achieved all that he has, there's one title David Remnick does not want. I know that you have told people you don't want to be the last editor of the magazine. I don't. Why would I? Are we all spending too much time looking at these?
A question for contributor Paula Poundstone. Almost everyone in our country is addicted to electronics and riddled with denial. When I talk to people about it, they get defensive. They say it's not addiction, it's just something they enjoy. Really? I love to play ping pong. I love to practice the drums. I love to tap dance. But I have never even once tried to figure out how to do any one of those things while driving in such a way as that the cops couldn't see. Because I am not addicted to those activities, I just enjoy them. And there's a huge difference. Screen devices wreak havoc with the brain's frontal lobe. Diagnoses of ADHD in our children have taken a steep rise since the proliferation of screen devices. Yet, even when presented with that information, parents often won't hear of protecting their kids from the harmful effects of screen devices. Kids love them, they say. Yes, they do. And some kids would love heroin if we gave it to them. I'm told that after the initial vomiting stage, it could be a hoot. We didn't know this when we first brought these shiny new toys into our homes, but now we do know. Still, adults aren't doing anything about it. Why? Because we're addicted. Addiction hampers judgment. You see it. Everywhere you look, people are staring at their flat things. We're terrified of being bored. No one drifts or wonders. If Robert Frost had lived today, he would have written, Whose woods are these? I think I'll Google it. Screens are tearing away our real connections. Ads for family cars show every family member on a different device. Applebee's, Chili's, Olive Garden, and some IHOPs are putting tablets on their tables. These restaurants claim they're providing tablets just to make ordering easier. Well, gee, if saying, may I please have chicken fingers, is too difficult for our young ones, wouldn't we want to work on that? The tech industry has profited from the every child must have a laptop in the classroom push, but education hasn't. Research shows that the brain retains information better read from paper than from a screen. And students who take notes by hand are more successful in tests than those who type their notes on a computer. Yet art, music, sports, play, healthy meals, and green space, things we know help the developing brain are on the chopping block of school districts' budgets annually. Even knowing this, at the suggestion that we get screen devices out of our classrooms and away from our children, people gasp. But they'll need them for the world of the future. Our children will need fully functioning brains for the world of the future. Let's put that first. We're in every home. We're half the human race. You can't stop us all. Ahead, actress Carrie Mulligan. A Sunday profile. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Carrie Mulligan played Daisy Buchanan opposite Leonardo DiCaprio in the 2013 film The Great Gatsby. It's a role unlike any she's played before or since, which is just the way she likes it. Ben Tracy has our Sunday profile. Whether she is dancing with the great Gatsby, 
You have no idea how boring everything was before I met you. Being seduced by a con man. We're in every home. We're half the human race. You can't stop us all. Or fighting for equal rights. The one thing Carrie Mulligan does not want you to see on screen. We will win. Is Carrie Mulligan. I mean, we live in a time where so many people seem so desperate mm. to be famous. And you actively fight against it. Yeah. Growing up, I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to pretend to be other people and for people to believe that I was other people. I don't want people to watch me on screen and think about who I'm married to or where I live or, you know, what restaurant they've seen me coming out of. I want to sort of trick people and I think they shouldn't know a lot about you and nor do they need to. The Hollywood Reporter just declared Mulligan one of the eight great actresses working today. But despite that, she is still one of the least recognizable. You change your look quite a bit, is that part of it? Yeah, yeah. If I see someone who looks identical from film to film but playing different people, I just find that harder to buy. Let me see him, please. She's transformed herself once again in her latest film, Suffragette. She plays a woman who loses custody of her son in the violent fight for women's rights in early 20th century Britain. <laughs> Mama! My agent called me and said they're making a film about the suffragettes. And I was like, cool, so Mary Poppins and, you know, ladies drinking tea. Well done, sister suffragette. And then I read the script and it just completely changed everything and I was just so shocked. This is a deliberate escalation. This has to stop. We break windows. We burn things. Because war's the only language men listen to. Because you've beaten us and betrayed us and there's nothing else left. So shocking that we'd never told this story, but sort of so shocking to remember that this is still the case for so many women now. 62 million girls in the world can't go to school. One in three women experience sexual violence. You speak for me. Can't. So it never felt like we were making historical drama. It felt like we were sort of saluting these women for the sacrifice that they made, but also trying to look at where we are now and, um, and bring it back around to the modern day. This also happens at a time where there is this discussion about the wage disparity in Hollywood between actors and actresses. Mm. You know, there, there's a wage gap in, in most jobs and most positions, I think, and, and, and it's particularly rife in Hollywood. I think it, um, it has been for a long time. It is my intention to astonish you all. It's no coincidence that her desire to play strong female characters I'm paralyzed with happiness. has led to many film projects adapted from classic works of literature. I mean, the thing with these, the literary adaptations, they've just been the roles that have spoken to me and they've been the strongest roles. And, and so much, you know, there's a reason that great literature is, is adapted time and time again. It's because it has these brilliant characters. I shouldn't mind being a bride at a wedding if I could be one without getting a husband. Mulligan knows her film choices may have given her a certain reputation. Are you a serious person? No. No, I'm not. I think I've, I'm drawn to serious material um, because I find it difficult and, um, and that's exciting and challenging. But I don't, I'm not a serious person in my own life. And I don't do serious things. Um, <laughs> but I'm in my own, you know, I don't go home and read sort of Nietzsche and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty kind of um, relaxed. But yeah, I just, the, what, the material that I'm drawn to is, is often quite serious. The acting bug bit her early. 
She was born in London, and from about the age of six, Mulligan was in every school play that would have her, and her first love is still the stage. The first time I was here was when I was 14 years old. It was during a trip to New York as a teenager that she realized exactly what she was going to be when she grew up. And I saw Kevin Bacon doing a one-man show. I can't remember what it was about. Just a few years later, she would find herself back on Broadway, only this time starring as Nina in Chekhov's The Seagull. And there's a line in the play where my character, and she's a young actress and she wants to be on the stage, and everyone leaves the stage and she looks out and across this lake and says, I'm dreaming. And, and I remember the first night when I came on stage and I said that line in felt, you know, it was just a complete dream come true. Mulligan's dream got even bigger in 2009 when Hollywood sat up and took notice. She starred in the British coming-of-age film In Education, which earned her an Oscar nomination and a comparison to Audrey Hepburn. What if I got married instead of going to college? Married? Married. She played a 16-year-old girl, dutifully living up to her parents' expectations, until love leads her astray. In Mulligan's own life, it was acting that almost came between her and her family. When you told your parents, I want to be an actress, what was the response? They wanted me to go to university and then pursue acting once I had a degree. I went off and did auditions and lied about where I was going and, you know, it was the most deceitful I've ever been and probably the biggest fight I've ever had with my parents when they found out. You paint a picture of being a very good child. Yeah. Did you ever have a real rebellious phase? When I was 16, I asked to have a party, and I'd never had a party before. I had a superheroes party at my house, and um, it was a complete disaster, and the police came twice. There were cigarette burns in the carpets, and, you know, it was carnage. Um, and my parents were so so disappointed in me. So I have to ask, what superhero were you? I was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, <laughs> which has been my superhero costume of choice ever since then, actually. Hero in a half shell. Yeah. Very nice. Turtle power. Uh... <laughs> so rebellion was not her strong suit, but determination was. By 2011, Mulligan was on a fast track to stardom. Hi. Hi. One of her early Hollywood projects, the film Drive, playing the love interest of actor Ryan Gosling. During filming, she yeah. lived at this hotel. And I could see the Hollywood sign from my window, and I remember taking a photo of it and sending to my mom and saying, I can see the Hollywood sign, you know, I'm really here. Um, now, at age 30, Carrie Mulligan has taken on a new role. She and her husband, Marcus Mumford, the lead singer of the band Mumford & Sons, recently became first-time parents. How has being a mom changed you? I think I'm more relaxed. That's great, because I don't think relaxed is the word first-time mothers usually use. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. no, I know, but you know. And even with talk of another Oscar nomination for her role in Suffragette, Mulligan says she can now put it all in perspective. I love doing my job, and I really like talking about it, and all the great things that come from it are wonderful. But at the end of the day, I go home and take off that hat and, you know, it's another life. Next. There we go. Anchors away. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment and more. 
play it at play.it. The naval history of World War II is very real and very personal for two boys our Steve Hartman has visited. It all began here in Raleigh, North Carolina. A1. With a flurry of plastic bombshells. You sunk our battleship! A few years ago, 11-year-old twins Carter and Jack Hansen got really into the game Battleship. That got them interested in naval warfare in general, which eventually led to a family vacation to see the Yorktown, a retired aircraft carrier in Charleston, South Carolina. My mind was just blown, like blue. The kids say the Yorktown changed their lives. I just realized how amazing history could be. And it was about to get even better. On that same trip, the boys learned about a World War II vet named Robert Harding, who actually served on the Yorktown. They got his email address, started corresponding daily, and became really enamored. The boys now keep his picture by their beds. And if you ever go to the Yorktown with them, as we did, they'll chew your ear off about Mr. Harding and what he did on board as a plane handler. And when the plane's ready to launch, he would like go unstrap this, and the plane would like go flying that direction. The folks who run the Yorktown say a lot of kids love the ship, but no kid has ever fallen for a sailor who served here like these two boys have fallen for Mr. Harding, which is why for this trip, the Yorktown made special arrangements Okay. for a surprise visitor. Mr. Harding? That's right. Uh, I miss you. <laughs> Hugging an old salt never felt so sweet. Oh, you're a good boy. It was hard to tell who enjoyed it more or who needed it more. Japanese plane. I guess I need somebody to talk to about it. It's surprising the way it worked out. <laughs> Since we first told this story in April, Mr. Harding and the boys have stayed in touch and last month got together again at the Yorktown. Long time no see. This time for an entire weekend. So is this where we're sleeping? Yeah. The boys got to spend the night on the ship. Oh, man. And even better, hey guys. they got to attend a reunion full of sailors who served on the Yorktown. Sailors who gave Jack and Carter certificates naming them honorary members of the Yorktown crew. This is going in my room. I don't even know what to say. This was just awesome. I mean, an official member of Yorktown has been my dream. There we go. Whoever said history is irrelevant, obviously never fell in love with it. We don't know about how we've changed his lives, but we know that he obviously changed ours. Still to come. Travels with the piano guys. How do you know all this? And later, what's new at the movies? He's my father. Members of a one-of-a-kind music group are really striking a chord with devoted audiences. Lee Cowan shows us how they do it. easy way to describe what you're about to see and hear. There's no point in trying to label it either. No musical genre really quite fits. 
I like to say that it's familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. There's no rule books. There's no uh, specific music theory that we stick to. We just know when it feels right, you know? They're called the Piano Guys. And if you haven't heard of them, you haven't been on YouTube lately. Their music videos are more like travelogues. They've been viewed well over a half a billion times. That's a billion with a B. As internet sensations go, the piano guys consider themselves a little less than hip. We're not rock stars. We're the farthest thing from it. Nobody is putting pictures of John Schmidt and Stephen Sharp Nelson on their wall and, and in their lockers. And, and their, yeah, in their lockers, right? And enshrining us. You know, nobody is doing that because we're old. We're dads. Yeah. We're like we're not good looking. You know, it's just. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. Stephen Sharp Nelson on the cello and John Schmidt on piano. The piano guys consist of two others, their producer Al Vanderbeek and cinematographer Paul Anderson. The man behind those extraordinary YouTube videos. You have to do something different that people haven't seen before in order for them to want to share it. For them, being different is all about piano placement, like hoisting one on top of a thousand-foot cliff in Utah. You basically just oh, wrapped it in these uh, tables and shrink-wrapped it. And you have no idea what we're yeah. doing. Yeah, you, know, you can't go to Home Depot and ask for helicopter to piano tether cables, right? I mean, yeah. we just, you know, but it, it made it. They managed a mini concert at Iguazu Falls in Brazil and moved a piano by hand along the Great Wall of China. Basically, they built some kind of contraption where they could rest uh, you know, a sticks on their shoulders, and they were all around it, and they went up probably about 200 stairs up the Great Wall of China. Carrying a piano. Carrying. Crazy. Those kind of stunts have earned them a pretty hefty internet following. Piano guys now have nearly 4.3 million YouTube subscribers and counting. How many new subscribers do you get every day? Uh, I think around 5,000, I think. Was, every day? Yeah. Yeah, it can fluctuate. Isn't that crazy? I know saying it, I don't want to sound nonchalant about it, but I mean... It's like a whole concert hall yeah, every day. It's like filling a concert hall every single day. Yes, they do play live, too, like when we caught up with them at the Smith Center for the Performing Arts in Las Vegas. They've released several albums as well. The most recent, a live album, out this month. Their fans are as hard to categorize as their music. They're young, they're old, they're male and female, rockers, and not so much. We can't pretend like we've made our career. They've made our career. And so it's fun to play to them, and even to a small extent, pay them back a tiny bit for all of the support that they've given us. We remind each other all the time, don't let it get to your head. This can all be taken away as, as fast as it came. I don't want everyone to get used to this feeling of just, um, you know, the miracles that brought us together. Our dearly Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity we have. Not a day passes that they don't give thanks for it all. So Faith for all and family matter most. Happened. 
They're all devout Mormons. They record not in L.A., New York, or Nashville, but in the basement of a modest home in Salt Lake City. You know, Latter-day Saint or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you feel like a lot of people misunderstand you, and that causes a lot of, you know, frustration. Look, we're Mormons. We don't have horns on our heads. We don't have multiple wives. Uh, we're not crazy. We just... Yeah, that's but, debatable. <laughs> well, <laughs> some of us aren't crazy. <laughs> they certainly have a sense of humor about it all. They joke they don't collect wives, they collect children. That's not one of mine. <laughs> but. They have 16 between the four of them. I smile a lot of my videos, and people ask me why I do, and it's because of them. It's my, my wife and my kids. I'm thinking about them and, and how much I love them and how much they do for me. And, and so no matter where I go and how amazing the world is out there, it's never as amazing as inside the home. Thank you. That's why when Sony Music came calling with a big recording contract, these four dads were at first more worried than excited. So we were just like, no, thank you. We said no six or seven times. They wanted to make it, but not at the expense of their personal lives. Sony compromised, agreeing to distribute their music worldwide and let them work their tours around their faith and family's schedules. There is an understanding that family will always come first. We're dads first and foremost, and that's been a very important thing for us. And it's kept us alive, it's kept us inspired, kept us doing what we're doing. Oh, it makes your music better, it makes your performance better. You just feel like everything's in balance, and it's good. All right, here we go. Here we go. We were amazed at just what they can accomplish in that small basement studio. Basically just trying to get all the different kind of sounds, different kinds of types of textures, and then we'll just kind of piece it all together. How about one of these? Steven has some 20 cellos, and he can make each one sound like just about anything. We watched as he laid down a buzzing sound. Then, something that sounded like a seagull. Then a bang. Mix in a few steel brushes. And a little hand rubbing. And then top it all off with John's signature touch on the piano. They are painfully aware the internet is fickle. why they say they trust not just in their talents, but in something larger. So how far do you think this can go? I, I didn't go for a long time. For now, the piano guys are on a roll, creating that wonderful sound amidst nature's wonders. If the good ideas keep coming, all of the good ideas are God's, and we'll just rely on that. And if they don't, then there's something else for us. Let's check my light. Next. Picture perfect. A short take now from Daniel Jones, a photographer whose work is almost always picture perfect. I knew when I left the house this morning, it was gonna be this incredible fog, this glow over everything. It's just so quiet down here. You could hear your heartbeat. This is an eight by 10 view camera. 
It's kind of like my old friend. I'm Daniel Jones and I'm a photographer. When I work in this environment and on a day like today, I don't really think. Now it's very automatic. This blocks out the light. When I look into the back of the camera, which is the ground glass, the image is upside down and backwards. But that's not the way it works. Eventually your brain corrects for it and actually aids in composition. Let's check my light. The boulder behind me is, is popular for kids to climb up on and jump off. I come and visit it every so often and the lighting is always different and the boulder appears to me to be different. I had been to this boat many times and sometimes I didn't even take a picture. I just looked at it, but this one morning it was just perfect. The boat is pointing out to the unknown. You don't know what's out there. You could go through the veil of the fog and it could be a sunny day. I live and work mostly in Long Island now. This is where I was born. When I was growing up, I thought I would be an illustrator. I probably started drawing in second grade and I have the proof right here. This is 10 years later, this is college. This was done with an airbrush. And after college, I, I needed to start working. So I got a job in a photo studio. Everybody takes pictures, but I thought I could make art, you know, with photography. I learned by doing. This is just fascinating here. As the waves crash over the rock during high tide, the ice slowly builds up and then it starts to melt and you get these icicles hanging off. I sell my work at galleries and I also sell at uh, art fairs. The color work is, is newer work. This is a lot different than a gallery situation in that I get to meet the people that buy my work. So this is done by panning the camera very fast. They're irises. It's the connection with the person who's buying your work that is worth a million dollars, really. They're kind of dreamlike. It's there, but it's not there. Like, like the ripples on the, on the wave as it breaks. My photographs are, in a way, they're like my children. And when someone is willing to purchase one, I feel like, oh, I wonder if it's going to a good home. I don't have people in my photographs. Uh, I find it distracting. I want the viewer of my images to feel like they're there. They're there by themselves. But I have a picture of my daughter Kate and it's in a forest. She's a little tiny figure in the picture and she's on a path that kind of winds back into the distance. And really that image was a metaphor for her long journey because she comes from China, she's adopted. When I'm not taking photographs, uh, I love watching Kate play the violin. I also like watching her uh, do gymnastics. Uh, she's very determined and it's a beautiful sport. This image behind me is called Family Tree. It has a real connection to me because it was an image I shot the day my father passed away. He was in the hospital, but I needed a break. I got home and I got a phone call that my father had passed away. I've since gone back to visit this tree. In an odd way, I feel like I'm visiting with him.
This is not the easiest way to make a living. I can't even afford to buy my own work. <laughs> Luckily, I can just make one. I've been fighting my whole life. It's not a choice for me. Ahead, screams. Hey, hey, hey! No, no, my cab. No, no, no. That's my cab. That's my cab. Tis the season for the kind of movies Hollywood often considers its best. And our critic, David Edelstein, has been to see three of them. The cusp of December, holiday movie season begins. What's to see that's everywhere? What to seek out? What to salivate over seeing, besides Star Wars, which I'm already sick of? To see now, Creed. I've been fighting my whole life. It's not a choice for me. You gotta work hard. I swear to God, if you're not gonna do it, I'm out. It's not quite Rocky Seven. Sylvester Stallone is very poignant, a tad shameless, but on the sidelines. All right, here's what I want you to do. The spotlights on a young African-American boxer, the son of the late Apollo Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan. Two years back, director Ryan Coogler collaborated with Jordan on the devastating Fruitvale Station depicting the senseless death of 22-year-old Oscar Grant. That's one kind of vital story. You don't know nothing about me. You are false Creed. Creed is another. It focuses on pride, hard work, forging one's own identity. Yeah, it's Hollywood corn, but it has the texture of real life. And there's a long, long single-shot boxing match that is a knockout. To seek out room. It opened small last month and it's going wider. We are going to bake a birthday cake. The story of a mom and five-year-old son in a room he thinks is the whole world. A place of magic and fantasy. What she doesn't tell him is it's a prison fashioned by a sexual psychopath. I'm scared. I know. Such evil is flabbergasting, but the good is somehow more mysterious. The capacity of a child, when guarded by a loving parent, to project kindness onto the most malevolent environment. And the jungle fire was burning. I can't praise the acting of Brie Larson and young Jacob Tremblay enough. Raw nerve stuff. To look forward to, the big short. So Mike Burry, guy who gets his hair cut at Supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan and Hank Paulson. How do you make an exuberant comedy about the financial apocalypse of 2008 that also elucidates the labyrinthine fraud at the heart of the economy? You're not going to be able to refinance. On all my loans? What do you mean, all your loans? I have five houses. Director Adam McKay leaps to the occasion, working from Michael Lewis's book on the collapse of the subprime mortgage market. It's part goofy comedy, part thriller, part documentary that leaves you with actual knowledge. It's fueled by stupidity. But that's not stupidity, that's fraud. Tell me the difference between stupid and illegal and I'll have my wife's brother arrested. <laughs> you root for maverick bankers and hedge funders, played by, among others, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Christian Bale and Brad Pitt to be proven right in betting against a market built on corrupt loans. You say yes when they are, then realize their win was your loss. It's the year's most rollicking 
bad times. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.